Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome back to the Daily Jungle. The week is flying by. Wednesday is already in the books. And you know it's a good day when Robert Griffin III leads the show. Find out what RG Me did this time. And Jared Jones waiting on Zeke Elliott's quit job. And wouldn't you know it, he was carrying water for his running back. We also had three excellent guests. Brian Arakpo, the Tennessee Titans, Wisconsin Badgers quarterback Alex Hornibrook, and S.I.'s Lee Jenkins, who wrote an incredible cover story on Dwight Howard for the magazine, and then he dropped some straight fire on the Chargers. Alvy, roll it. Let me start with RG3. Back in the news, Robert Griffin III. Now, the last we heard from him, he was posting video of his highlights from what appeared to be a pickup game against middle-aged Estonian men. Oh, and getting clowned by Martellus Bennett for it. He retweeted that with, ha, 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 RG3 hooping in the Viagra League. Ha, 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 ha. And you know it's bad, right? When a current NFLer is clowning a former NFLer. It's one thing for one of you to do it. It's one thing for one of you to retweet that video with that caption. But a current NFLer clowning a former NFLer, that's pretty bad. Except he's back. Back in the headlines. And of course, it's about his time in Washington. Former receiver Santana Moss appeared on 106.7 in Washington on Monday. And he said that Griff was gloating when Mike Shanahan got broken off. Moss laid out the situation in 2013. All of a sudden, it's a whole big dilemma in the locker room, in the meeting rooms, and just in our building that, you know, the man, Mike Shanahan, and RG's not seeing eye to eye. And before you know it, you know, RG's not playing, but he's, his whole thing is to, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if that was his whole plan, but when the whole thing went about, we hear that Mike Shanahan's not coming back the next year. Then we hear, you know, the quarterback like, hey, mm-hmm. Like, basically saying that, hey, you know, you got me out of here not not playing last year, the last few games, then this that's what happened. You get fired. You know? Taking credit for... You can't do that. You know, one thing I just shared with you, God don't like ugly. God don't like ugly. God don't like ugly is a great line. And gloating about somebody getting fired is about as ugly as it gets. I, mean, I don't care how bad it gets between Bob and the lobster... Gloating about somebody losing a gig is ugly, and it's about to get even uglier because Moss wasn't done. So 2014 comes, and you got Jay Gruden comes in, and he don't care. We see that now. He doesn't care. He don't care what he says about you. He doesn't care what he says at you. And he rips RG every chance he gets, every meeting, and we sitting there looking like, yeah, you know what? You were just so happy that Mike and Caldum is gone. But now you're getting your behind ripped every day because you're not playing the kind of football that we need to play for us to be successful. So, you know, it comes back and bites you in your behind because now you see this guy is at home. Mm. So he goes from this relationship with the Shanahan's to getting chewed out daily by Gruden. And as Moss points out, when somebody gets fired, it's typically more complicated than just one player wanting them out. But in this case... RG3 certainly seemed like he wanted to take the credit for getting that guy fired. I feel that a lot of stuff goes into play when it comes to who gets fired and hired, all that stuff. It's all about numbers. But it's a fluid organism. Regardless of what went on when it came down to the, those decisions of why those guys was gone, it was almost like that was 
on him that he took that say, well, hey, that's what happens when you mess with me. And, and, and that's how we felt. You know what I mean? We saw it. We saw it live and in and, and, and person up in front. All right. So that's pretty critical. That's pretty critical. And obviously not unfair, but pretty critical. But you knew there was no way that RG3 was just going to sit back and let that slide. The dude has no job. He has plenty of time. He has a phone in his hands. So he was going to start firing. And he went with a string that included lines like this. Quote, no subtweeting needed, Santana Moss. I treat you like a brother and have always had your back. To openly lie about me is a betrayal. Been lied on a lot over the years. That's right, Robert. Just keep tweeting through it. Just tweet right through it. Quote, put in an impossible situation with a coach who never wanted me. Made players like Santana Moss a believer through hard work. Film study. Quote, end of quote. Yeah, I don't know, Bob. It doesn't sound much like Santana was a believer. Or maybe I should say, yes, you made a player like Santana Moss a believer. But they didn't believe the things that you thought they believed. They believed that you were a coach killer. They believed that you celebrated when a guy lost his job because he messed with you. RG3 continued, quote, Some so desperately want me to fit this negative narrative that's been pushed about me, but I don't fit it, never have, never will. End quote. Again, Bob, hate to break it to you, but if you're posting videos of highlights of you playing Viagra League basketball in Estonia during week one of the NFL season, the negative narrative does fit. It fits perfectly. If the negative narrative didn't fit, you would be on a team right now. But the combination of injuries and the negative narrative that you think doesn't exist means you're not even holding a clipboard on an NFL sideline. You're hooping in a cramped gym in an Eastern or in Eastern Europe. Hey, look, I don't know who to believe here other than it makes no sense for Santana Moss to come rolling in and start making up stories about RG3. And secondly, this does fit the entire RG3 in Washington narrative, right? The meeting in 2013 where he reportedly told the coaching staff what plays were acceptable and what were not acceptable to call. The social media beefs, the rumors about him only wanting positive plays shown in meetings. I mean, at this point, I'm not even sure what's more amazing. That a 27-year-old with a Heisman Trophy, an Offensive Rookie of the Year award, and a Pro Bowl trip on his resume is out of work. Or that we're still talking about his time in D.C. when he last played a game three years ago. I just know this. It's not going to be the last time we talk about him. Just as I know RG me still does not get it. Hey, Bob, how can it always be somebody else's fault? Let me help you with that. It can't. Now stop talking football because you don't play football anymore and get back to draining jumpers over accountants in Estonia. Brian Arakpo is my guest. You had a huge game. I just gave the stats. Huge game against Jacksonville. I know that was a game that you had circled, and you were reminding everybody all week long that it was Jag week. Why was that game so important to you, and how good did it feel to come out with the win that you did? Uh, Hey, Brian, what's up? Yeah, Jacksonville has just been a place we struggled uh, to play in. Uh, That team is is very, very good, especially when you play a division opponent. Um, Everybody knows each other. And obviously, you all know what happened last year. Those guys kicked us out of that – that playoff race with uh you know with our chance to win the AFC South so 
Yeah, we definitely had this from circles. We wanted to get a little payback um, from what they did to us. But also, like I said, a division opponent. We wanted to make sure we take care of business. Brian Arakpo joining us. All right, so as a team, you dropped a tough one to Oakland in the season opener. The offense got off to a slightly slow start this past Sunday, but ended up winning by three TDs. Does it feel like a return then to Titans football? Yeah, I wouldn't say. Uh, yeah, I would say a, a return to what we know we can we can do. Uh, we we preach on being a physical physical front, both on the offense and defensive lines, and you know that's contributed to our W uh, in Jacksonville. If we can make sure we take care of the ball, create turnovers, and win the line of scrimmage, that's Titan football all all Sunday. Anytime we play a, a, an opponent. That's what we want to uh, distribute, just be physical up front and, and create turnovers. Well, as an example, you had that huge hit on Blake Bortles in the second quarter where you got that hit from the blind side, you forced a fumble. Can you take me through the play? What happened, and then how satisfying is it when you get a hit on the quarterback like that? Yeah, when you're a pass rusher, like myself, obviously, you always want to get the sacks, but the, the, the bonus, the icing on the cake is when you're able to get the ball out and then actually recover it to get your your offense another opportunity to score. And that's what happened on that play. It was an obvious, obvious passing situation. And, you know, you get me in a passing situation, <laughs> most likely I'm going to get there. So had the opportunity to, to get around the corner on the left tackle, made a, uh, you know, and just went for the ball. Um, and that's what we preach. You get, go for the sack but also make sure you try to get the ball at the same time. Right, and as part of the defense, you know that you're going to get to the quarterback when you get that opportunity, but you're part of a defense that has a lot of other guys that can too. You, Derek Morgan, Darrell Casey, among others, which means there are lots of guys who can get in the backfield. As a pass rusher then, how much fun is it to play in a defense knowing that you've got so many different ways to get to the quarterback? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun because, you know, you're not playing with pressure. You're not the that one guy that... If you're not getting there, nobody else can do so. Uh, we have a team that's uh, got a tremendous amount of pass rushers on our defensive front uh, with myself, Morgan, Casey, to name a few, and guys that know how to get after, guys that get sacks for a living and hunt quarterbacks for a living. And uh, it just takes a lot of pressure off my back. You know, um, I can just go out there. If I'm if I'm having an off day, I know Morgan and Casey's going to do their thing. If Morgan's having an off day, he knows Casey and myself is going to do our thing so we go hand in hand with one another every time we go out there on the field clones can you give me one minute so i can talk to you about stamps.com listen these days you can get practically everything on demand like our podcast listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you so why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com Anything that you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it, 24 and 7. As an example, we grind out every single day here on the program. Back in the day, if I had to get something out or I had to get something to a potential guest or a team, I'd have to leave the office and get to the post office. It was horrible. And I will never do that ever again. And nor should you. Use stamps.com. Do not interrupt what you're doing to leave for the post office. And right now, use my name, Rome, for this very special offer. It's a four-week trial. It includes postage and a digital scale. But don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone. It's at the very top of the homepage. And type in Rome. Again, Stamps.com. Code name Rome. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office ever again. I know I won't, and neither should you.
Now it's back to our Daily Jungle. Brian Arakpo joining us, Titans linebacker. I mentioned Brian at the top. You're now a four-time Pro Bowler. You went after last season. It was your fourth time, but how much more special was it now than when you first came up and got into the league? Yeah, it's always it's always a little bit more um, satisfying or, or gratifying later on in your career. Um because, you know, you got a bunch of young people coming in every year, and a bunch of young, hungry guys at your position around the league every year, and, and to still be playing at a high level when I'm 31 and you got guys that are 22, 23 that are young and hungry, um, it's still gratifying that you put in a lot of hard work in, in your craft and in the off season. It's really paying off um, throughout the season so I can go out there and continue to be a dominant force for my team. It might not seem like a real big deal, but it seems to me you take your family with you and you have a chance to share that experience with them. You take your kids to Disney World, among some other spots. I guess in a way, Brian, it might be easy to say, well, you've had a really good run. You've made some money. It's not that big of a deal. But is it not bigger than that in the sense that you're able to show your kids, look, Pops works really hard. Pops is on the grind, and this is what happens when you really apply yourself, and then the family gets a trip out of it. Is that the way it felt to you? Yeah, absolutely. I always use that uh, that Pro Bowl as um, obviously, you want to be playing in the big dance. That's the number one goal. But that's kind of like a cancellation prize for everything you put in throughout the season, all the hard work, and now you can kind of share it with your family and, and, and do uh, exciting things that with the Pro Bowl now being in Orlando. That was pretty cool. That was my first time and my family's time being in Disney World, and we got to experience all that in Universal Studios and everything that comes, the glitz and glamour that comes with just being a part of that that, that whole week, um, I thought that was pretty special. And um, like I said, my son and my daughter, they, they had a tremendous time. And just to see the smile on their faces, I wouldn't miss it. Anytime we had the opportunity to go to an event like that, I wouldn't miss it. That's a good story. That's a really good story. Brian Arakpo joining us. And then your wife mentioned that you don't talk about work and that you really don't bring it home, except when the two of you talk shop is when you're watching film in the evening. Do the two of you watch film together, and does she give you feedback on your technique or your performance? Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because we were actually watching film yesterday. <laughs> wow. uh, and just she knows how I play. She knows my, my moves. She knows just my mannerisms out there on the football field. So she was trying to – I did a spin move in the fourth quarter, and that's something I don't normally do. And she was like, why don't you start incorporating that more in your game, kind of throw – people off, give them a, you know, show them that you can or capable of doing that. So she, she likes to critique me on certain things, and I definitely appreciate it because we've been together for so many years. I mean, freshman when I was in college. So she knows my mannerisms out there on the football field. She knows what I'm capable of doing. So it's always good to get her insight. That's so funny. My wife sometimes, Brian, does the same thing. Like, she'll hit me with not to be a producer, but – and whenever she starts something with not to be a producer, but she's about to produce my ass. Exactly. You know that's going to happen. You know how that goes. <laughs> now, you know, you were born and raised in Houston. You went to Lamar High School, and you were really active in the efforts to provide relief to your city in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. From an emotional standpoint, what was it like for you to see places where you grew up being completely underwater? Yeah, it was definitely emotional for me. Um, being born and raised in Houston, Texas, and seeing all the streets and the highways and areas that I lived in uh, just underwater. I mean, places looked like lakes. Uh, it was, it was unbelievable to, to to see. It was definitely devastating, and especially when I couldn't do anything at the time with trying to take care of you know our preseason uh, matchups. Uh, but once I was able to have some off time, um, I just tried to do the best I can, and that's raise a bunch of money, get a bunch of supplies and donations through the city of Nashville, and uh, let's go ahead and ship it out to the people of need and. 
I just try to do the best I can from being so so far, um, and and it really went a long way for the people that really needed those supplies and those donations. And you bet, and everybody understands that that you've got the preseason, you've got some work to do. Now, your brother Michael was using a fishing boat to rescue people who had been trapped. What kind of things did you hear from him about the experience, and then how proud were you of the work that he did? Yeah, I was so proud because he took the initiative to do so. Uh, when he told me what he was doing. I mean, my eyes lit up because, you know, that's something I just did not expect. I didn't even know he had a boat, honestly. He just, him and his friends, they they got some boats together and went, literally went into neighborhoods that were underwater and were literally saving people. As I'm seeing it visually on pictures and stuff he was sending me of people trapped within, you know, within their, within their homes and trying to get them back to common ground and, you know, just trying to take essential things, as much things they can save with the, with the people that they were saving as well. Um, it was it was definitely a sight to see. Uh, it was definitely something remarkable that somebody so you know has so many little resources, but he's just trying to do the best he can. And my brother Michael and uh, I'm really applaud him and all, everybody around the whole city that was just helping people, just trying to get back to common ground and get back on their feet. Yep, good for him. Good for everybody who pitched in like that. Brian Arakpo joining us. Hey, Brian, you tweeted the other day that you know who you're going to be running with in NBA 2K. Who's it going to be? Who's your team in that game? You know, I'm the hometown guy. I'm a Houston guy. Harden Harden and company all day. We got Chris Paul. I'm definitely going to be rooting for my Rockets all season long. So we know Zeke Elliott's got lots of problems off the field. Regardless of how it plays out, lots of problems already off the field. And now suddenly a big problem on the field. You saw his act this past weekend against Denver. Denver lays that beat down on Dallas. And Zeke Elliott... His body language was all wrong. He didn't turn around and chase after an interception. He was accused of quitting on that play on his teammates. All in all, really bad day for the team, but especially for him. And Jason Garrett took a run at him, called him out for it. However, Jason Garrett's boss, Jerry Jones, defended Elliott, even though the coach did take a shot. Well, I think if you look at everybody's uh, uh, reaction to that interception, uh, I think you can point to Zeke, but you really have to look at the general uh, uh, effort to chase that ball down by uh, uh, most of the people that were on the field. Uh, you look at it across the board, and you'll see uh, more effort. You'll need more effort than what you see. See, the thing about Jerry is, Jerry played college football. Jerry owns an NFL franchise. Jarrah knows more about football than I do. He's obviously way smarter than I am. But that's just a bad take. That's a bad take. I don't agree with that at all. I mean, why do you got to cover for that guy? I don't buy that nonsense either that he's a young player. He had never experienced that kind of failure before. I mean, right, he had a bad day. They were getting their asses kicked up and down that field. They locked him up. Bad day. Frustration. Who cares? It happens. Deal with it. What you don't do is go into a funk and just shut down. Do your job. Your job includes turning into a defender when the quarterback throws an interception. It's one of the first things they teach you. Turn into a defender when the quarterback throws a pick. Do not stand there with your hands on your hips and watch everybody else go back the other way. That's not doing your job. I mean, what's amazing to me is it's still something that apparently you have to learn or he has to learn at the NFL level. 
How the hell was that not covered already? How was not addressed? How was that not addressed already somewhere along the way? Like, I don't know, maybe the first time you ever put on a pair of pads? Isn't that the first thing you learn as an athlete in any sport? Never, ever quit? And that while so many things were out of your control, and that you're not supposed to worry about things that you cannot control, about the only things that you can control are your effort and your attitude. I mean, do we really need to pull a guy like that at that level aside and address something like that? Talk about something like that. You have to tell your bell cow, bust your ass every single play. Don't ever quit on any play or your teammates, no matter what the scoreboard says. Finish the play. Finish the game. That's really something that has to be addressed at that level? I wouldn't think so. But apparently in this guy's case, you do. Look, they've got a lot they have to address with Zeke Elliott off the field, but I never thought they would have to tell him not to quit on a play or his teammates on it. And even then, one thing to have to tell him that, quite another for the owner to cover for him and say that, nah, he wasn't the only guy. He didn't do anything wrong because he did. And the worst part about this to me is this whole notion that, man, the guy's just so freaking competitive. That's what it is. He just wants to win so badly. He's so competitive. He's so competitive, he quit on that play. Competitors don't quit. They compete. That's like the lamest take of all. He quit because he's so competitive. Yeah, because that makes sense. Yeah, right. Like, RG3 isn't playing football because he's so good at football. I'm not saying it's the worst thing ever. I'm not saying that they lost because of that. I'm saying it's a bad look. Bad attitude. Bad play. Just own it. Yeah. It got the better of me. It got really frustrated. I had nine, I had eight yards on nine carries. Yeah, I got to admit. Kind of got under my skin. Got in my head. I was pissed. I shouldn't have done that. I won't do it again. I don't know why Jerry's got to constantly enable these guys. Say he didn't do anything wrong. That was wrong, period. You know it was wrong because the head coach said it was wrong. You know it was wrong because it was wrong. You know it was wrong because we all saw it with our two eyes. The guy stopped on the play. Hands on his hips. He had to tell this whole vibe of like, hey, Dak, really? We are joined by Lee Jenkins. Lee, your piece on Dwight Howard I think is fascinating. As you write, in 2008, Dwight Howard had more endorsement deals than LeBron James. He appeared in seven nationally televised commercials. End quote. Lee, the idea that Dwight was having more endorsement deals than LeBron seems almost laughable right now. But how big was Dwight back in 08? You know, Jim, it's funny because so much has changed in the NBA. I forgot myself. I mean, we're talking about somebody who... When the NBA asked its general managers who they'd pick to start a team, they picked LeBron first and Dwight Howard second. He was over Kobe back in 2008-09. I mean, you remember that year he led the Magic to the NBA Finals where they lost to the Lakers. I mean, he was clearly the best defensive player in the league at that time, and you could argue he was the most efficient scorer. I mean, their whole offense basically dump it into Dwight Howard, let him turn, let him dominate. And look, you know, this happens with football players, with baseball players. They can fade out pretty quickly. But usually in the NBA, if a guy's really good and he's 24 years old, he's going to be really good for the next decade. And that's where I think Dwight's story is different 
because the prime of his career is really where things spun out of control on him. I mean, Lee, to that point, could you have ever imagined that back in 2008 that at some point he'd be on his fifth team in seven seasons? No, and I think, I think a lot of it's the injuries and the back. I mean, I think that his athleticism was taken away from him for a few years. I think that there was also so many off-the-court issues going on with him that people didn't know about. I mean, all the kids, five kids with five different women, um, you know, things happening. And this is pretty common with NBA players, but, you know, friends of his, even family members kind of pilfering money, just sort of a, an off-court lifestyle that, that spun out on him. And I think when you kind of trace it back, I mean, you probably remember when he was coming out of high school, the whole storyline was this was the guy who wanted to put the cross on the NBA logo. I mean, he was almost going to be an evangelical basketball star. And I think once he got to the NBA and, you know, was a little bit tempted and seduced by the off-court lifestyle that there is in that league, I think he sort of said kind of the hell with it, you know, with everything that he thought about before and sort of the foundation of his life and childhood and kind of reinvented himself off the floor in a totally different way um, that wasn't necessarily conducive to performance. Lee Jenkins joining us. He's written the cover story for Sports Illustrated on Dwight Howard. I mean, there's so much interesting in that response, Lee, but... In addition to that, the things that spiraled out of control for him off the floor, he also went from being on top of the game in 08 to being called soft, being the butt of jokes online, essentially an outcast. How much do you think that got to him and bothered him? I think it bothers all these guys. I mean, you look at what's going on with Durant right now. I mean, things that happen with LeBron. I, I just think, I don't know if it's, if it's something about basketball, something about the NBA, the backgrounds of the players. I'm not really sure what it is. But they are, they are bothered. There is sort of an insecurity, even with these guys who would seem otherwise superhuman. And, and I also think, Jim, that there was – Howard's just an interesting case study for just where basketball has gone and how it shifted. Because if he came out of the draft right now, I really believe somebody would look at him and say, oh, we can put the ball in your hands. You can play make. We've got to make you into a three-point shooter. I mean, you look at what they do now with their really athletic bigs, and they make them dynamic. And back then – it was more of, you know, you stay under the paint, you stay under the basket, you stay in the paint, don't do a lot. And I think in some ways Howard got caught between eras because once the game sort of changed, I think he either didn't change with it or wanted to and wasn't allowed, and that kind of depends on who you ask. But yeah, by that point, he was already sort of one of those under-the-basket robots. And that's where he's, I think there's still some bitterness that he was capable of more, that he could have changed with the times and wasn't allowed to. All right, so to that point, if the role of the big man has changed that dramatically and it's so different now than it was in 08, can he ever get back to the way that he used to impact games? I don't know. I mean, and that's a great question. This guy, is, you know, he's trying to shoot three-pointers. It's like he's made five three-pointers in his career. You know, they're working on him. He's, I watched him. I mean, he's, he can handle the ball a little bit. You know, they worked on more kind of feeding him inside the three-point line. Can he take two dribbles and convert? You know, and not just be that guy who catches it with his back to the basket. That that's sort of what they're banking on. But listen, he was 31, and at 31, you sort of are who you are in that league. And I think that the reason I think there's some hope for him. This guy went 13 and 13 last year for the Hawks. He shot 63 percent, highest percentage in the Eastern Conference. What if he gets to 18? You know, he's with his old coach, the guy who coached him in Orlando, Steve Clifford, was also with him in LA. You know, if he just gets to 18 and 12 or something, people are going to look at this as a, as a huge comeback story for him. And I think that coach 
can help him do that because what you, the reason you want Dwight Howard is still to protect the rim. He's still a really solid, really good defensive player. But you kind of have to feed him enough on offense, I think, to keep him engaged because that's part of where this is. And he's liable to shut down. That's what happened in L.A. It's what happened in Houston, in Atlanta. He'll kind of shut down on teams. And I think that's where he's got the wrap for being a bad locker room guy. I mean, it's just – it's energy, Jim. I mean, he might be the most – he might be the most polarizing player in the NBA right now. You say the name Dwight Howard to other players, there's kind of a look you get. And that's where I think he is. He just feels like he needs to turn around kind of his whole career and image, just even for the rest of his life beyond just basketball. Really good point. Good point on both sides. And you can read that story. It's the cover story of Sports Illustrated right now. Lee, I cannot let you go without asking you about the Chargers. The Los Angeles Chargers, Lee. Now, you are one of the most respected journos in the country. You are one of the (laughs) most peaceful. Lee, you are one of the most peaceful people in the country. How do you feel about the first two games of the Chargers season and your feelings towards the Spanos family? I love this guy, Koo. I think they should make a statue of him right next to Tony Gwynn and Tom Linson and Seau. I mean, he's a, he's a true San Diego hero, Koo. Um, oh, and these, wow. have been, these have been really two of the great weeks in Charger history. Uh, for anybody who really loves the Chargers, Jimmy, it's so wild. I mean, you go to bars in San Diego, and they're rooting for I mean, They're rooting. They rooted for the Broncos in week one. I mean, the, it's such an unusual dynamic where a team would move this close to their old city. And I think they thought it would help them because they – keep some of their fans, and they'd have some of that momentum that they built. And in reality, it's been the opposite, because they've been followed by all that anger and all that outrage. And since L.A. is just apathy, really it's the outrage that's filled the vacuum. And I don't know if they ever could have expected that that would sort of set the course for their story in this first year is really everybody just making fun of them all the time. Lee, is there any way, I'm not saying the Spanos would ever do this, but is there any way they could come back? Would the city take them back? Would Spanos be open to it? Could you take that relocation fee and let him keep it? Is there any way to reverse course? Oh, the city would definitely take them back. I think it was, you know, when LeBron went back to Cleveland, I think this thing he said was, you know, it's a fine line, line between love and hate. And it was, and that's where it was. I mean, at least there's emotion. You know, there's passion for them. It takes a lot, really, to make San Diego. You work there. You live there. It, it takes a lot to make them really angry. You know, it's like a Ron Burgundy line or something would have to do it. So in this case, I think that anger is actually a sign of the devotion. But you need owners who've taken these relocation fees or are entitled to these relocation fees to forfeit that. I think that's a huge long shot. I mean, clearly it's a black eye for the league. It's embarrassing for the league. I think if they had to do it over again, they would, I don't know how they didn't see it coming, but I think they would do it differently. But at this point, from everything I hear, it's too late to reverse course. You know, in 10 years, could it happen? Yeah, I think it probably will, you know, down the road. But um, for now, I think San Diego will just have to be happy seeing a bunch of Chiefs fans in those seats. And I mean, that thing's going to be painted red this weekend, that little stuff up there. <laughs> Yeah, it was last weekend, too. And the only thing better is in when the Raiders play them and all of a sudden Charger oh fan God. is a Raider fan. Can you imagine that? Like, Charger fans repping the Raiders, rocking Raider jerseys. I mean, it's like the weirdest, most surreal thing ever. You know, and, and the thing is, too, is the Chargers always had opposing fans in the stadium. I, I mean, I get that. You know, especially after the Spanos just firebombed their fan base. You know, you get, you know, you get 10, 20,000 opposing fans. I mean, more, obviously, if it's the Raiders or the Broncos or the Steelers. But the problem is they're in a stadium now where those people are going to make up 
75% of the crowd, right? I mean, the Chargers probably only have, you know, about 10 to 15,000 fans who are actually going in there. So, it's, look, it's going to be a bad look for a, for a long time for them. Alex Hornibrook is my guest. Alex, I mentioned you're coming off that huge win over BYU. You set that school record for completion percentage going 18 of 19. You know, when a pitcher throws a no-hitter or a perfect game, the question always is, did you know you had something special going into the game? So let me ask you the same thing. Did you feel any different heading into Saturday's game that let you know that you were about to do something special? I did feel a little bit different. And um, to be honest, probably about uh, Thursday, I didn't even feel that great with the game plan. But then um, we had a long flight out to Utah and it kind of got delayed a little bit so I actually just got on uh, and started watching film I think I watched about three hours or more of film just on that flight and I was just kind of repping out the things that we were doing throughout the week and I felt awesome come game time you know I know you're not gonna take credit or all the credit yourself so what's to say about the chemistry that you have with that offensive line and your receivers that you can complete more than 94 percent of your passes in a given day yeah the old line started all off they kept me clean pretty much the entire day and I had a lot of time back there um, so that definitely helped out. And then um, I had some guys making plays. It wasn't like every single one was right on the chest or anything like that. We had people like Danny Davis, Quintez Cephas, um, Troy Fumagalli that were making plays for me. Um, and there were some balls, 50-50 balls that they came down with. Alex Hornibrook joining us. So you're the Big Ten Offensive Player of the Week. Last season, you took over as the starting quarterback during the season as a freshman. So what's the biggest difference in your game now versus the start of last season? As an example, is it something technical in terms of your accuracy and your reads, or is it more just about being a leader and the role that you've taken on there? Yeah, it uh, definitely feels a little bit different. There's obviously stuff I'm still working on, but um, you know, I think with the accuracy and everything like that, I feel like um, it's all just about knowledge within the – within the plays and knowing where to go with the ball so you can feel confident um, wherever you're throwing it. But um, I think just being confident in the offense and the guys around you. You were talking about watching film with Peyton Manning. Were you able to sit with him and kind of pick his brain and find out the way he went about that? Yeah, there are a couple uh, things that I asked him and some things I learned from him. One was that you should never watch film without a notebook. It's kind of just a waste of time, and that makes sense because if you're just watching and try to um, check off a box or something like that, you're not, not really getting anything out of it. And then um, another thing was just kind of watching film at home instead of the coaches' offices. You're not watching so that other people can see you watching film, but just actually watching, um, you know, to get to get a hold of the information that you're watching. You know, there's a story also that after you beat Western Michigan in the Cotton Bowl, you texted Sean Snee, who is Wisconsin's assistant strength and conditioning coach and sports nutrition consultant, and you asked him if he thought that you could get to 220 pounds and 10% body fat. These were pretty lofty goals. What did you weigh at the time of the text, and what made you feel like those were numbers that you could hit? Yeah, I think I was um, probably around 218, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, but the biggest thing was I didn't like my body composition, so I was um, feeling a little bit uh, fatter than I should have felt and wanted to cut down on some fat and build some muscle. So um, it was a big transformation, but um, I didn't completely reach those goals, but I got – I got pretty close and definitely grew from it. Now, at one point, you were up to 6,000 calories a day, which is a crazy number, and more than some of the offensive linemen even. What was that process like, consuming all those calories? I mean, is it fun because it sounds fun, or really is it really hard work? Um, It was a little bit of both. I think uh, at the beginning, I got with Coach Snee, and we just set out a meal plan for me, and I was eating the calories that we were putting down, but I was losing weight, so I just had to keep bumping it up and bumping it up. Um, and then after a while, I reached some, something in the 5,000, close to 6,000. So 
Um, it got a little much um, after a while, but I, I enjoyed doing it. I mean, so can, can you give us a sense for the listeners that don't know, what is, what's 6,000 calories? I mean, is that like six or seven meals a day? Is it four monster meals a day? How do you get to 6,000? It's probably closer to six or seven. And one meal that I always had, it was chicken or steak, a sweet potato, some brown rice, and then vegetables. But I ate that probably twice a day um, for at least three months. So there wasn't too much variety in the diet, but um, I had fun doing it. It sounds like some work, though. And before you go, Snee does allow for guys to have a moral booster meal or a morale booster meal or two a week, which is essentially a cheat meal, but he's accentuating the positive. You, on the other hand, did not want to go with that booster. How come? I just felt that the reason that I was able to kind of transform my body was because I didn't, I didn't have any of those meals. So um, he actually said something about it at first, and I got a little angry at him that we were talking about that and trying to get people to have those. But, um, you know, it was just kind of something that I hadn't done before, so I didn't really want to start doing it now. All right, so you've done all the work. i got to ask the question, has it made a difference in your strength, your agility, your athleticism? How does it play out on the field? Yeah, um, I noticed the big difference in just in summer conditioning and um, all the numbers that we have with our um, in our strength program and um, also out on the field when we're running and everything. I just feel a lot better, a lot cleaner, um, and I think it's definitely helping me. All right, so final thought. A lot of guys might not want to be in the spotlight. They might not want the responsibility that you have, but this is something that you clearly are comfortable with and that you've worked towards. Knowing that, what's it like to now have the pressure, the responsibility that you've wanted for so long and all eyes on you finally? Yeah, I think um, this is actually something I got from Peyton when we were when I was down at the camp. But um, you want the expectations and you want the pressure because that's um, that's a positive thing for you, and you want people to expect you to perform. But um, honestly, it doesn't make too much of a difference what you're doing. Um, you still got to come in every day and work. There's no difference with that. But um, you know the expectations come, and that's something that you want to have. Emails. Keenan writes, Jimmo's, Jimmo's the man. Early this week. But Danny and Tomlinson criticized Zeke Elliott, and you revealed that he was part of the manual buzzer. I had no idea. How did that come about? Thanks, Key. All right, so there's a lot of history of the show. I'm constantly reminded of how many new listeners we have, and they don't realize all the ins and outs of the regular happenings, i.e. the manual buzzer. All right, so quick history. The manual buzzer is a big part of the program. At first, there was the buzzer. We would just run bad phone calls with that. A gymnasium-style buzzer. Then one day, I did a take about how I was getting a lot of phone solicitors at night calling my house at dinner. And I'd pick up the phone where I'd be working, and they'd hit me on my desk, my office phone. And I started dropping manual buzzer on all the phone solicitors. So then we had that, the manual buzzer. Hello? Yeah, hello. Is this the man of the house? Yes. Glad that I could talk to you. If you had five minutes, I would... Ah! So I was doing this all the time. And then in 2010, January, I believe, Nike leaks the LT Slide Electric Line. An 80s-style inspired dance video, and it was pretty awesome. An emailer suggested that we use that to run calls, and thus the LT manual buzzer was born. No. You don't like that call. So, where's like that, that email, call. whoever it was? Not a very I always good say call. to make the show better when you contribute. Well, that's one person who did. He made the show better. So, that's where that came from. LT is a part of the manual buzzer. That's not that call. That's not that call.
Now, to be fair, Adam Hawk ran into LT and told him that story, and even he didn't know. So don't feel badly. If you listen to the show and you didn't know that it was LT, don't feel badly because LT himself didn't know. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for downloading the Jim Rome Podcast. Episode 4 with Dirk Nowitzki and William McGinnis did drop yesterday. I would love for you to check it out. Thank you for trusting the podcast. Check back tomorrow for more, and we'll see you then.